Loving Thy Neighbor, The Godfather, coming up. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast where, in the words of Tom Hagen, we have a special practice. We handle one client. Carl Paul Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Zach Narrison. Well, we have an extremely important guest on with us today. He's one of those uh, guys for whom I'm not ashamed to say I'm something of a fanboy read uh, tons of his works. Um, he is the Carrie M. McGuire University Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Southern Methodist University. He is author of many works on Christian ethics, including some of my favorites on Niebuhr. To name a couple, his uh, Abingdon Pillars uh, of Theology book, simply called Niebuhr, and his book published by Cambridge Press, Reinhold Niebuhr and Christian Realism, both I would recommend for scholars and uh, newcomers alike. He also co-edited the somewhat recently released compilation, The Oxford Handbook of Reinhold Niebuhr, and something should be said for his students as well, uh, who themselves have been movers and shakers out there in the Christian ethics world, one of which uh, uh, he co-edited that Oxford Handbook with uh, Dr. Josh Malden, and another, uh, you all know him, uh, uh, Kevin Carnahan, both of whom uh, we've had on the pod just in in the past year. Now, his name has been evoked, uh, invoked uh, countless times on this podcast in the past, and we've affectionately taken to calling him the godfather of Niebuhr studies. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. Hence the godfather references. Uh, Dr. Levin, uh, such a such a great o- honor. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Good to, good to be with you, I've, I've, because I've heard a lot about you from these oh, other well. people that you've interviewed. Thank you. Oh, Thank cool. you. Awesome. Now, the way this is going to work for our audience is we, uh, we're we doing something a little bit differently today. We don't have a specific book or article we read in preparation. Instead, we've more or less decided on a general topic. We'll be talking about uh, Niebuhr's view on human nature, sin, uh, and the easy and un- an uneasy conscience and and everything that those te- tentacles reach. Um, Basically, we'll be talking about human, uh, nature and destiny of man quite a bit. Um, Zach and I have prepared some general questions and prompts, and we'll go around for about an hour, and then we'll wrap up. So, Zach, uh, you want to get us started with the very first question? Yeah, well, it's it's a custom. Anyone that comes on the podcast, we ask the same. We start. We, we kick it off with the same question: Why Niebuhr? What got you? What you got? What got you into him? Why? <clears throat> why you write about him? That's. Uh... It, it, particularly in my case, an interesting question because I I came to Niebuhr with in in my graduate studies with a kind of critical uh, point of view, uh, like uh, many of his critics over the years. I found him too pessimistic about human capacities, and uh, and also, of course, I was part of that uh, generation of the civil rights movement. And Niebuhr has has had prompted some justifiable criticisms about his own hesitations about uh, that. But it also reflects the fact that he had been around a lot longer than I had at that point in time. And uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, 
my subsequent experience has been to find that when Niebuhr seems to be too pessimistic, he's usually right. So, uh, so, so it it's been a long process of both learning more about his thought as a whole, and and then also coming to appreciate elements of his thought that uh, that seemed questionable to me when I uh, first studied him as as a graduate student. Was there one book in particular at first that kind of blew your hair back a little bit when you when you read it? Yeah, I suppose, like most people, my initial exposure to uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was moral man and immoral society. And, uh, you know, he he takes a very uh, strong, critical view of uh, Christian optimism and, uh, and especially any kind of optimistic views about human nature in that book and it, perhaps like Niebuhr himself you know I, I followed the train of going from my own critical questions about moral man and immoral society to working my way through nature and destiny of man mm. and and understanding more fully the the background of, of Niebuhr's thoughts so it was a, it was a combination of um discovering that his pessimism was probably pretty well justified in most cases, and then also coming to to understand his uh, realism and his way of thinking uh, more clearly and and fully than I had originally. Which one? Um, Moral Man, Moral Society, Nature and Destiny of Man, and maybe Irony of American History are kind of the three that are still really championed today and and seen as, you know, kind of his great contributions to uh, Western theology, American theology in particular. Um, which one would you say is the best? Which one's most valuable? Oh, well, certainly Nature and Destiny of Man as a, as a kind of uh, comprehensive statement is the most important and and then the most challenging for uh, the typical reader to grasp. I spent um, <laughs> this past weekend in a Presbyterian church in Westfield, New Jersey. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things I was encouraging them to think about is, as you say, the irony of American history and the relevance of that mm-hmm. view to our present situation. The politics is yeah. very different now, but but that notion of being in the battle and above it, as as Niebuhr says at one point, that notion that um, God is not so much judging us as laughing at us in some <laughs> In in the way that we relate to one another and and create our our societies. I had a very good time with the folks in in Westfield, New Jersey. And I think part of that was, again, that for all the differences between the 1950s and now, Niebuhr's view of Niebuhr's ironic view of history really makes sense to people today. 
That's good. So in a way we could say that maybe nature and destiny has the, the, the gravity, you know, and it's, and, and then we have these two important planets that circle it. Ah, and that are, yes. That's you know, more man and more society and yeah, irony. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, that's how I tend to look at it too, but maybe because I've, I've read you so much, but, um, but uh, others might, you know, might might put more men, more society at the front. If they're really into foreign policy, they might put Amer- irony of American history. But good. Um, my next my my next question, then we'll go back to Zach. Um, sorry, those were just riffing questions. I didn't really have those ones planned. <laughs> but, um, but I was interested in this. So um, I know you were at University of Chicago for a while. Um, did you have any overlap with? Uh, Langdon Gilkey, uh, who was yes, one of yes. Niebuhr's uh, students. Uh, and what was that was, and, and of course, there again, another one of the leading voices in Niebuhr scholarship and somebody who, who, for me, quite personally, helped make the transition from a, the, the Reinhold Niebuhr era to the 1970s when I knew uh, Gilkey as a as a colleague. Uh, what uh, the other thing about Gilkey, of course, is he had, I think, a great book that is very Niburian in its point of view, and that's naming the whirlwind. Hmm. Uh, hmm. It must have come out in the. I, I'd have to look again to see the date. I remember reading his work, and then especially reading naming the whirlwind when I was uh, still an MDiv student at, uh, at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, it, <laughs> one, one of my great experiences as, as a junior faculty member at the University of Chicago was driving back from a faculty retreat and realizing that I had both Langdon Gilkey and David Tracy in the back seat of my car. Wow! <laughs> you know, uh, again, I, I I really thought, well, this is this is what graduate school was all about. Was getting to this point. Yeah. They 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 were both great colleagues, but Langdon in particular, of course, yeah. with his appreciation of Niebuhr and his his his, his my conversations with him about that. Uh, very important. I love hearing That's that. My cool. one of my advisors, uh, Roger Haight, uh, st- was uh, around there at that time too, and he told me stories about Langdon Gilkey. And he's just one of those guys that, yeah, I I would love to get more into. And yeah. uh, but yeah. I, I heard that, and and I've obviously read his work on Niebuhr, so um, just a wonderful guy. And if and if I may, I this is uh, this is kind of a follow up, kind of going off of that a little bit. Um, might be an impossible question to answer. Um, but I kind of see you, Gilkey, his book on Niebuhr, um, uh, Ronald Stone, Richard Fox, uh, some as some of the major you know sources of reception when it comes to Niebuhr in theological circles over the past uh, half century or so. And I think we could probably throw in James Cone, um, even though he yes. you know he didn't do a ton explicitly on Niebuhr, his his reception of Niebuhr is noteworthy in theological circles today. What do you think distinguishes your work, I guess, from mm. from the rest of them? Well, there there is a, a, a simple chronological thing, which is, although I would have had the opportunity, uh, I never met 
Niebuhr, unlike, say, Stone, uh, who was his student, or, or Langdon Gilkey, who's, who's because of his family connections, you know, knew and knew of Niebuhr from a from a very early point. So, so I have always seen myself as, you know, one of the early voices that that could look back on Niebuhr without nostalgia. Indeed, as I suggested, with a certain critical sense for uh, about his domination of of American religious social thought. Uh, so I, I I think that's. That's a difference. And what goes along with that then is uh, perhaps a larger sense of the history of American yeah. uh, religious thought that he fits into. Uh, oh, and, and one other point that I would add to that uh, uh, is about the time I was doing my graduate work, I think theological studies in America became much more ecumenical. Yeah, interesting. Than they had been before. And, and certainly Gilkey and James Gustafson, my colleague at Chicago, uh, were, were all a, a part of that. But, uh, you know, I was part of this totally ecumenical environment. And in fact, it, it, and I do not recommend that anyone read my dissertation, but but <laughs> <laughs> were you so unfortunate as to do so, you'd, you'd discover that I was using Reinhold Niebuhr and John Courtney Murray as uh, uh, the two source figures for my understanding of American politics and American law. Interesting. Uh, and my thought, if I were just to add to it, having read a lot of the same people I just named, it seemed that you did a lot to help define and kind of guard the term of Christian realist and locating ah, Niebuhr yeah. within that category. And that probably goes along with having some distance from him and being able to see him within the broader spectrum of historical theology. Yes, I think that's, that's, that's right. Uh, you know, that I never had the opportunity to sort of defend Reinhold Niebuhr the person uh it was christian realism yeah uh it was it was what reinhold lieber as i like to see it intended to do uh and uh, uh and 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 i would still say that today you mentioned my own students you know who, who uh, developed a little volume recently on the future of christian realism hmm. and and i think Maybe, maybe that is the way to answer your question about the transition is, is I always wanted to see Christian realism as a not just Reinhold Niebuhr's name for what he does, but as a systematic way of thinking about uh, religion and, and society and, uh, and, and as a way of thinking that had and has a future. Well, I, I had a question for you about, uh, I got a couple of questions about the uneasy conscience. Hmm. Um, there's, there's one in particular that kind of is recurrent. It comes up on the podcast uh, I, quite often, especially early on. Um, it seems like the uneasy conscience in some ways is antithetical to the momentum that's needed for hmm. responsive civil, civil disobedience or defensive war. Um, do you think 
is being constantly aware of our unrighteousness, of our limitations, um, is it prohibitive to the sudden righteous indignation, which seems to be necessary for these sorts of actions? Like, um, it, do you think it lulls us into a certain inaction? That's mm. just a question we kind of wrestled with quite yeah. a bit. Well, I, I, that's certainly a possibility. But one of the things that I think is really relevant about Niebuhr, that again, I was trying to share with the group in New Jersey last weekend. One of the things that I think is, is really relevant about Niebuhr is his uneasy conscience is a really good voice for our present period of time where, uh, if anything, we have entirely too much conviction out there uh, in the in the political arena and too little uh, opportunity for, for second thoughts. So, Which, so I, I, uh, I, I, I certainly agree, you know, that, that it takes a, a certain level of conviction to get out there in public and oppose what's going on around you. But at the moment, uh, hesitation is not a big problem in the political arena. That's true. Well, could you could you like uh, give us like uh, an example, if you're willing? Yeah. Um, so, you know, broadly speaking, the polarization in politics today has, is the result of people too closely infusing their politics with their personal identity. Mm. And so if you challenge that, uh, the, the chances are they're going to recoil as if you were challenging everything about who they are and what they believe and what they have done. Mm. And that's not an environment in which political argument can go on. It's an environment in, in which, as I, as I like to say, everybody believes in been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. And as soon as you got the logo on the T-shirt, that's all, all you need uh, to establish your, your political position. I think we, we need more critical thinking than than that and uh and indeed it's it's a serious challenge to the future of democracy well you, uh, you so you think it would make us more uh, at the present moment that's not our that would not be our issue that would not be a, an issue that the inaction would not be a, a problem you yeah. think it actually would call it well the uneasy it, conscience it, right? here's, here's the the perhaps if we have a critical and self-critical consciousness will will be more thoughtful about how we take action and what we take action on. I mean, let me put it this way. At present, speaking up does not seem to be a problem, whether whether that's correlated with or translates into effective action that, that leads to political change. Because one of the things that deeper, it, it, especially in the irony of American history was, was about, was reminding us that political, you know, the big political problems really are ultimately insoluble. Mm -hmm. So we've got in, to ask ourselves, what is possible now? And I think that's basically the question we're, we're not asking. You, 
you to to get a little more pointed about it, you don't go through weeks trying to identify somebody as the Speaker of the House if you've got a sense of some limited field of prob- problems that you're, mm. you're looking at and trying to solve at the moment. If, on the other hand, your objective is to divide everybody into polarized camps and uh, and emphasize the differences between them and insist there's no place for compromise in the in the middle, well, then our current political environment should suit you quite well. But of course, mm-hmm. that's that's not a Niborian way of looking at politics. You mentioned something about uh, being able to look at human sin or our, our foibles and flaws as if God is laughing at us. And and it seems like our ironies are our problems that when we do examine, it seems like irony and hypocrisy, those topics don't land on us anymore. Yeah. It's, it's And it almost seems like you have to have some conception of a shared humanity between two parties or, you know, two sides of a spectrum in order for that stuff to kind of land. You have to be able to I don't know. You, you have to be able to see the human element uh, of uh, that that you are you are potentially ma- causing the same kind of problems um, on your side as as on another side. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes a great deal of sense. I think that's a very good way of of putting the the current problem. And of, of course, again, one of those great lines from uh, irony of American history is is you know something like. We are never quite as righteous as we appear to be to ourselves, uh, and, uh, uh, and and you know he was about how do you conduct politics when you know that, as opposed to when you're trying to emphasize your own righteousness and uh, it, you know basically suggest that the the other guys have no ground to stand on. It's it's hard to not. Uh, put two and two together that you know media is so uh omnipresent it's it's so ubiquitous now that <laughs> it's almost like we have this mirror of ourselves all over the place at all times and we're ch- constantly trying to perfect that image of us in the public and i'm talking about politicians as well that there's never a question of you know what am i getting wrong it's more about how am i displaying myself yeah. Yes, I think I think that's right, and and of course the the other thing about that is the great statement that Tip O'Neill used to make was all politics is local, but I'm not sure that's true anymore. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know that uh, that a sense of accountability to a a local constituency that uh, that is spread across some spectrum of beliefs and values has has disappeared in favor of a sense of accountability to a, a, a sort of idealized constituency that that is all in one place in terms of their their beliefs and and values. A uh, lot of reasons why why that has happened in the media is is certainly one of them. But again, I I, I think Niebuhr would look at our current hesitations and and second thoughts about the media and say 
Now, this is basically more about human nature than it is about our ways of communicating, although yeah. they are obviously in, involved in it. 100%. Yeah, that's a good point. To get into, I guess, human nature a little bit, um, a little bit more, um, and particularly nature and destiny, if the goal, if the thesis or the goal of nature and destiny is basically uh, to give a defense of or retain the Christian view of anthropology um, over and against the various uh, philosophies and theologies that Niebuhr saw as destructive or self-destructive in the West. Do you think that goal is still worthwhile today? Hmm. Yes, I, I I do. I, I think, it, it, you know, probably the ways that we implement it need to change in relation to the current, especially in in relation to the current polarized in, environment, but but I, I I think that's one of the permanent values of of Niebuhr's uh, view and understanding of our political situation. It's it, it's kind of difficult um, because Niebuhr at least had the privilege of being in a time when you know Christian attendance was up. It was more of a, a, a center of power. Mainline churches were. So Christianity was kind of a given. It was kind of a question really of which kind of Christianity. Um, but today it almost might look more, uh, you know, explicitly like an apologetic for Christianity um, than it is a, a, a valid philosophical approach to, say, personalism or, you know, um, yeah, yeah. something like that. Well, that uh, that is a a risk, uh, of course, uh, and and I think you're you're exactly right. Niebuhr could assume a, a much broader awareness of the sources of these Christian ideas and a certain resonance in the in the culture. Uh, but uh, it, you know, it, I think he 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 himself. Thought, uh, thought that he lived in an environment in which the Christian influence was on the wane. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I I don't think he would have seen his environment too much differently from the one that you described, even, even though we have to take another broader historical look and see what what's the same, what's changed since then. Yeah, that's a good point. That, that, let me give you an example. So um, Sabella brings this up in his biography, uh, about how I believe it was the State Department sent uh, copies of uh, Nature and Destiny and Children of Light, Children of Darkness to Parliament newly minted parliamentarians in Japan. Yeah. Um, what a stunning yes. idea! <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and today, like you bring something like that up today, and people are mortified that we yes. would send yes. Christian uh, Christian theologians' books uh, to Japan. Uh, so I guess, yeah, that, that's kind of the quandary, right? Of, yeah. uh, how much are, are we spreading, uh, an empire of democracy or an empire of Christianity and how much are we just trying to maintain what's actually good in society? Yeah, that's, that is a very good question. And I, you know, it, it, it's certainly seems to me that, that especially in the current in, in, in a way, religion is more implicated in current global political conflicts than it was in Niebuhr's day. 
Yeah. You know, uh, again, he would have been the first to raise questions about it. But you could, in his day, look at as as many <laughs> imperialists, to use that term, without uh, you know negative connotations. But people looked at the world as a progressive spread of Western civilization, certainly with Christian values behind it. Um, and I think we're we're much more conscious today that, that and, and, and it's an important point that we have to be very careful about claiming our our own ability to represent that mm. set of values you know yeah that's good that's fascinating the uh i want to take us back to uh the uneasy conscience um so i was watching a video a while ago, it was by, um, <clears throat> there's a series on YouTube, it's called Closer to Truth. And they were interviewing David Bentley Hart. Um, and he was explaining his conception of God. And it was pretty persuasive. It seemed to kind of satisfy some of those perpetual, you know, incongruities that haunt um, anybody that holds to a theistic position. Yeah. Um, and as I was reading through the comments on this video, one of the atheists responded, and I thought this is you know, a pretty good response. He said, he said something along the lines of basically, you know, this sounds really great, but the problem that he saw with it was that the fact that really no Christians hold to um, heart's position <laughs> yes. by God, uh, you know, other, in other words, it's not actually in, in practice in the broader Christian practice. And so likewise, um, I really like Niebuhr's conception of the uneasy conscience. You know, I relate to it, uh, but we had uh, David True on a little while ago and he, he said that most evangelicals would look at Christianity as something that would make them more certain. It would make them more <laughs> certain of their beliefs. Whereas for Niebuhr, Christianity had a different impact. It was something that made him uh, question himself and question the systems and question the groups that he was a part of. And so my question to you would be, is Niebuhr's conception of an uneasy conscience something for all Christians? Or is it, so, or is it wonderful in form, but unapproachable for the common parishioner? Uh -huh. um, well, that I mean that it is a tough uh, question because I think the that for a generation of intellectuals uh, that was Niebuhr's own generation, the uneasy conscience was one of the great appealing features of his thought, hmm. and perhaps what we have to ask ourselves today again is. Is there a permanent truth behind that? Uh, as I would think that there is, or uh, you know, is is he simply, as many more conservative Christians today would think, too willing to to give up his uh, Christian identity or call it into question? Uh, mm. You know, he's. I think it's very hard in a day when all kinds of identities are constantly being challenged. It's very hard for people to think of religious identity as as something that uh, has to be held with <laughs> with a certain distance. Uh, yeah. 
and and uh, but the, because the distance that we're talking about has to do with the difference between me and the ideal, uh, the 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 view of God that uh, that I hold. Uh, it's it seems that we're in a time where that distance itself is very hard for people to conceive. Hmm. Uh, commitment seems today to mean I am a full-hearted representative of the position that that I uphold, and I can't be a good Christian and still challenge either my beliefs or the beliefs of my religious community or or, or whatever yeah so so anyway it, it, it's it's we're, we're not in a time where it's easy mm-hmm. to do that I, I think that's very interesting it's it really seems like i can see what you're saying in terms of if you began to practice an uneasy conscience you're kind of seen almost as an outsider at that point because yeah. you're almost like questioning the identity instead of Yes. Just being real firm, yes. like this right. is my position right. and I will hold yeah. it to the bitter end. Yeah. And I think that actually, you know, the rise of the nons, you know, I encounter a lot of people yes. Who, yes. Are, are, who are actually, I would say, very much like me and very similar minded in terms of yeah. my, you know, I'm a pastor, but right. they, right. they hold very similar positions to me theologically, but they, they've they kind of been put up against that wall, like you're saying, yeah. to be like, <laughs> there's no uneasy conscience here. You can't do that. Yeah. And, you know, one one little uh, sort of cultural thing that I, I often use to talk about this transition is to say, I date it from the time I stopped telling people on airplanes what I do for a living, <laughs> you know, because people, uh, there was a time, I think, Early on, when I could say, "Well, I I teach theology and ethics at a divinity school," and people thought, "Oh, that that was really interesting." Now they think they know exactly what that means, and they're scared of it. Interesting. <laughs> so, uh, wow, that's uh, fascinating. Or or worse, you know, they they yeah. I think they know exactly what that means, and therefore I agree with their conservative brand of of christianity uh it's uh we we find ourselves as you say more inclined to deal and to agree with people who are skeptical about religion and the church interesting uh maybe than than some of those who are fully convinced of it yeah Yeah. it was always unfortunate when i was doing my phd and people would ask me what i do i was just you know uh what i'm studying and i'd basically have to say i'm studying two subjects politics and religion that you can't bring up in bars um, yes exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know parenthetically this niebuhr certainly understood this because his his time in america was the time of billy graham yeah you know, and, and that for many people, whether their view was positive or negative, was what Christianity was. <laughs> and if uh, and and if Niebuhr, Niebuhr faced like I do, and like I think all of all three of us do, uh, uh, you know, faced the problem of a strong Christian affirmation that 
didn't look like what a lot of people in society were expecting it to look like. Now, yeah. um, my next question uh, kind of goes along with this uh, because we have we have both academics and pastors alike who listen to this, and we try to gear it as much as we can toward pastoral stuff. Sure. Um, but uh, Niebuhr always had certain biblical concepts and scriptures floating around in his head, and he deployed them very skillfully um, as teaching tools. Uh, when he went to explain human nature, he drew heavily upon two, Imago Dei and Original Sin. Mm -hmm. Now, tough question, but I, I got to ask, if you were to explain Niebuhr's view of human nature using these two concepts to a congregation, how, how, how would you do it? How would you explain how Imago Dei and Original Sin relate to compose who humans are? Well, I, I think I would ask people to look at their own experience. Hmm. Uh, so, and, and, and I, I think I learned this from Niebuhr, but, but that, it, that what, you're, what you're trying to do is, is to say the idea of being created in the image of God and the, the notion of just a a tendency to deny that and turn in the in the direction of self-interest mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, you know, I don't think it's hard to get people to see that as part of their own experience. You know, if if you uh, approach it the right way and and ask them to follow you honestly in their in their own thinking. Um, <clears throat> That you, of course, both for Niebuhr and for a large part of the Christian tradition before him, and certainly for the the world in which he lived in the 1950s, there was this kind of notion. Protestants, especially, are good at this. It, it, you know, once you repent, you you can get rid of that self interested, sinful side of, right. of who you are. Um, I think that's always been a difficult thing for uh, theologians to explain and to get people to take it into their into their own experience. But it, it, I'm glad you raise it as a pastoral question because because much more than I've got a theoretical answer to that, I think mm -hmm. I could lead people to see both of those things happening in their in their own experience do you think uh common liturgies and you know uh, preaching do a good enough job of explaining kind of the tensions between these truths of yeah. imago mm -hmm. day and 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 sin that you know that niebuhr finds a way to reveal yeah, yeah. well uh, you know i guess none of us ever do as good a job of preaching as as we like to think we do. <laughs> I wish. I think the, a problem with the world that we're living in at the moment is there's a lot of pressure on people not to develop that complex mm -hmm. dialogical way of, of speaking and thinking. Uh, you know, and again, that's that's understandable, right? I'm sitting in a congregation, and I know that most of my neighbors 
uh, have, have stopped going to church and and don't see this mm -hmm. as meaningful. And the the pastor is up there uh, expounding. It, it, he, it, it'd be a good thing if the pastor is is not calling this Bardian, but it, <laughs> but that may be where it's coming from. Uh, yeah. You know, a complex dialectic uh, going on in in human nature and in in human life. Uh, it's understandable that there's a lot of pressure on churches now to offer a simpler yeah. view of human nature. It sells, yeah. Yeah, and, mm. you know, to, to, to have an idea of Christian formation that is basically drawing people into that simpler view rather than responding to the challenges and difficulties of their uh, yeah. own situation. I, I often think of when, you know, I think of, because, uh, you know, when you're pastoring, you, you have to do like, there's discipleship courses, there's membership classes, there's those kind of things. And sometimes when I, when I'm reading Niebuhr, I'm trying to like formulate, like, how would I put this into one of these, yeah you know, yeah. six week classes? And then I think to myself, there's, it just sees such a divide, you know, there's such a, it'd be mm -hmm. so hard to. Yeah. That. And, uh, and, and it, it, it is, of course, because it, it represents having wrestled with Christian ideas for, for a long time. Uh, now, one, again, after the speak up quite, uh, quite favorably about Presbyterians in Westfield, New Jersey at this <laughs> point, because it, I think the, the other side of the problem that we're pointing to is those who remain in the church do it because they've already got some instinct mm -hmm. for these uh, conflicts. Uh, maybe they've had experiences in their own life that mm -hmm. made them take this uh, much, much more seriously. So well, maybe, yeah. Or would you say maybe, you know, as you're saying that, maybe it is that they've truly wrestled with it. Like yeah. they, there's, there's a difference between just being like told it and, or having learned it, you know, in yes. catechism yes. or something like that. But, but like Niebuhr is definitely a person who's defined by us like a true wrestling. He really yeah. he had yeah. to work these things out yeah. in a real, yeah. Well, this, this, again, I, I keep coming back, in fact, to my experience with a congregation just over this this past weekend. But, but you know, what I was, was trying to talk about in that context was the way in which Christian formation is a lot different from a theology class in which you're going to pass a test. Yeah. At the, uh, uh, you know, and Christian formation is not just about hear, hearing the words, but listening to them in a certain way. I mean, here again, I, 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 Bart, I think, has the right idea. The word has to create its own hearing. And mm -hmm. those of us who are going to lead in those situations have to stop before we've told people what it all means. <laughs> yeah. So that well, and, the word can create its own hearing. Well, yeah, and and we're doing a, a series right now on forgiveness where we have these discussion groups afterwards where on Christian forgiveness. And it's it's amazing because you can really tell the difference between somebody who has had to had to actually act upon forgiveness in a big way 
versus yeah. somebody who says to you, well, I've never really had to forgive like a big, like, the, you know, little things here and there, but never like a huge yeah. offense. Yeah. And it's like, I don't wish some of that on anybody, but man, that, yes, that'll do a but... lot of information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think so it's that's... interesting that, um, just hearing you guys talk like um there's that fan i think it's mike wallace interview that neighbor does where he's talking about he brings up pascal um mm-hmm. and quotes pascal saying and this is kind of nature and destiny in a nutshell mm-hmm. um where he says you know f- philosophies always tend tempt us in one of two directions the misery of man or the uh the greatness of man mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. only in the gospel can you find both the misery yeah. of man and the and the dignity the greatness of man yeah. and it, it made me think about this is not just something that we can apply to uh philosophies but also to certain types of preaching certain types of uh ecclesiology and and what's coming out of the pulpit some preachers, uh, they found what sells, what puts butts in the seats is uh, telling people how great they are. Some yeah. of them bash them over the heads and tell them how yeah. miserable they are, yes. how sinful yes. they are. And it's just not that caring. They're, they're not carrying that dialectic. And maybe it's just yeah. not something that sells as well. I don't know. But I but I got to believe that it, uh, it can. Yeah. It, it, you know, uh, it, it's very hard to grasp. That's also part of the Niburian message, you know, is that the truth of the gospel always transcends our, either our notions of human rationality or our notions of, of human evil, and especially the, the idea, again, of the, the limits of reason uh, at, at that point uh, make, makes a real challenge. Course, for those of us who try to communicate that that truth, uh, but uh, being appropriately modest about our own accomplishments might <laughs> might true. help. That's true. Yeah. So, I, speaking of like discipleship and that sort of thing, I had a, I had a question for you about responsibility and freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it what prompted it was as I was kind of preparing for this to, to interview and talk to you, I saw this article in the New York Times. Uh, it's an interview with uh, Robert Sapolsky. I think it's how you say his mm. name. Robert Sapolsky. It says Robert Sapolsky doesn't believe in free will. Mm. And my question is, um, you know, Niebuhr's mm. conception of freedom and responsibility seem to be foundational to his theological and ethical thought. Um, you know, emphasizing the ambiguity and tension in human nature and, and capacity for good and evil. Uh, and obviously, he wasn't ignorant of determinism and its, you know, its different constituents at his time. But to some degree, it seems like neuroscience and the material sciences, uh, you know, kind of exemplified by uh, yeah. Sapolsky's, he's a yeah. Stanford neuroscience guy. Um, there seems to be a growing belief that human behavior can um, be fully explained by biological biological mm-hmm. processes, mm-hmm. environmental influences in a way that almost like narrows it down, right? It, yeah. it, 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 you, maybe at Niebuhr's time, there was more ambiguity, but now it seems like it's kind of narrowing more and more towards that point. Do you think that that... Um, you know, in your expert opinion, do you think that Niebuhr's ideas stand up in the face of these scientific developments, or do you think that the ambiguities and tensions of Niebuhr's time are kind of being resolved? Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I'm going to stick with Niebuhr in that particular controversy because I, you know, I think that the kind of determinism that you're describing is yet another iteration of the 
scientific view of reality attempting to uh, explain things comprehensively and and uh you know there is uh, in contemporary i would say more philosophy than in scientific circles but but there <clears throat> there there's an equally strong movement in the direction of seeing the tension between a deterministic explanation of human thought and a, uh, it, well, it sometimes explains itself in left brain, right brain terms, you know, that, that I mean, there is a reality that's grasped by the deterministic, uh, detailed empirical account of things, but there's also a reality that is grasped by imagination and synthesis and precisely an attempt to locate ourselves in relationship to this, uh, you know, vast reality. And I, and I think if you ask, what does that mean in terms of Niebuhr's realism? It, it is that part of, of, of realism, again, is that our ideas never totally capture. Right what that uh, reality is. Re uh, reality it, it is, is different from our thinking about reality. It seems like there's a never ending, um, at the end of every reflection on whatever might be determined. Say we, we find out uh, what is determined. There's still a self that stands outside the self. Yeah. Uh, there's still the Augustinian, you know, uh, yeah. person who stands outside the self and directs themselves. There's a there's a case recently where this um, this man just out of nowhere developed uh, this really like these uh, aggressively sexual behaviors. And it, it was going on for a long time until mm -hmm. FBI finally came to him and arrested mm -hmm. him. He was taken to trial. They found out during the trial that he had a brain tumor. That was causing hmm. these things so and i heard i heard about this on npr okay um so it was like really dramatic and where where it all led up to uh but the judge said no because he knew the whole time this was happening ah. um and he could have gotten help but he chose to conceal it yeah. there's yeah. still a point where yeah, yeah, once you understand yeah, yeah. the determined nature that you can redirect it you know, yeah. and um, and that it, it, again, the the word you use to introduce this discussion is responsibility, right? And uh, it, you know, the the um, I think again, one of the things that that Niebuhr gives us is a view of responsibility that understands that it is always limited, right? I mean, there, there's no yeah. way that we can take responsibility for everything, and if we if we try to do that, we're, we're going to mm -hmm. fail. We're going to overreach ourselves. Uh, so the responsibility is always limited. But uh, mm -hmm. as your example suggests, it never completely disappears either. And right. the, the reflective task is, you know, is go back to what I was saying from irony of American history, being in the battle and above it. Mm -hmm. In such a way that that you uh, can see what's possible for you, uh, and and at the same time understand the limits of that situation. Yeah. Um, okay. So 
If we're talking about uh, Niebuhr's construction of sin and uh, Christian anthropology, we can certainly see the fingerprints of many influences going on through this work. And I, I got to go in this direction. I, I want to talk influences because you're the godfather, uh, Dr. <laughs> Levin. And I, you know, it's rare that we get someone uh, with your, your level of expertise on the show uh, when it comes to Niebuhr specifically. Um, so if I may, I, I'd like to rattle off some names. Some of them okay. may be dark horses that many have claimed to yeah. see going on in his anthropology and his analysis of Christian sin. And we all know Niebuhr, is horrible at citing and yes, right. and giving right. other people credit. So um, I'll just go one by one. Okay. Uh, this isn't rapper's response, so take as much time as you need with each one. Uh, with each one, first, let's go with the softball, Augustine. Yeah, well, that I think, if, if you ask Niebuhr, what source is he looking to consciously and on the basis of his own reflection and, and reading? That's that's the primary one, and uh, uh, and and I think we have to give Niebuhr and his generation a lot of credit for bringing Augustine and and other it, 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 his generation of Protestants, especially, a lot of credit for bringing uh, these figures back into the discussion because it, it certainly. Uh, Part of Niebuhr's criticism of the social gospel was its its tendency to regard all that as of merely historical interest. So, so yes, Augustine, Kierkegaard. Ah, there there something someone who's particularly important to Niebuhr. I think maybe more neglected in our world today. In, another way of saying that is my guess, I, I'd have to sort this out from the text and so forth, but I think Niebuhr was led into his Augustinian perspective probably more uh, from exposure to Kierkegaard. And the, is there again, what I was saying about the recovery of the past in, in Christian thought, his generation got that through these 19th century existential kinds of kinds of figures. So Kierkegaard as as somebody that, that Niebuhr especially valued and that led him into August. Do we still see William James in Nature and Destiny? Mm. Uh, yes, I you, you know, maybe less in terms of James's ideas, anything in particular that I could pick up as, you know, don't forget that uh, nature and destiny uh, exist in this in this genealogy of Gifford lectures. Yeah, that's true. And, and I think, you know, Niebuhr has a grasp of what James's project was. And it isn't so much that he shares all of James's ideas about psychology and so forth, but he he, he wants he wants to succeed in the same way that James did. And, yeah, uh, I see that. And I, I think that that certainly influenced him. John Calvin. Mm. This is really interesting because everybody, you know, students in particular, that is, say people who don't maybe have a, a whole lot of background always talk about Niebuhr as a Lutheran. Hmm. 
And of, of course, I it, just purely on historical grounds, I like to point out that Niebuhr was never a member of a Lutheran denomination. His, yeah. his, uh, uh, you know, he he was, grew up in that Union German Union tradition of of uh, Calvin and, and re Reformed and Lutheran yeah. churches and polity working together, and. I'm I'm still inclined to think that, that however, that the Lutheran influence is mm. more uh, profound there, it, 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 that perhaps Calvin would was for Niebuhr too much of a rationalist. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, well, I, uh, yeah. I was kind Very of thinking of one, one part in particular at the beginning of the Institutes where Calvin says something to the effect of and becoming more dissatisfied with myself. Ah, um, I can understand. Ah, well, God yes, more. yes, that, yeah, that would be uh, that. That's let me put it this from a from a self-centered Niburian perspective. We'd have to say that's a Niburian moment in Calvin. Yes. How how central it is to Calvin? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, another question. Yeah, I just recently had I read through a biography for Calvin, and there's the there's a quote in there where it says that he was. Uh, always striving to create Jerusalem on earth, but always recognizing that he would never create it. Ah, and I well, just there, thought, yeah, that, yeah. You know, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of, I can see that, that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. By the exploration of sin, we kind of come to grasp God and grace and love more. Yeah. That, yeah. Oh, right. Right. I mean, it, it part this this reflects the fact that I am a Wesleyan by background, <laughs> so, <laughs> so perhaps my appreciation of Calvin is not as strong as Niebuhr's was. Uh, this one I mentioned earlier, but it's someone that I throw in there because I don't know if enough people do. But Pascal, aha, uh -huh. yes, uh, and you mentioned the uh, Mike Wallace uh, interview, and it's it's. Interesting in that context that that I think Niebuhr did see Pascal as a figure that he could use to bridge the gap between a purely secular uh, uh, set of ideas and, and and the religious ones. That it's not as hard to sell to get people to think about Pascal as it is to get them to think about Augustine if right. they're if they're. Uh, mm. skeptical about uh, Christianity. Yeah. Um, last one, and you've written, and I mentioned personalism earlier too, And I, but I want to move this along a little bit. I had Trelch, uh, Plato, yeah. uh, personalism, Hebraic, prophetic tradition. Uh, but the last one I wanted you to get your comment on, because you do deal with this a little bit in uh, Christian realism, natural law. Uh, yeah. This is this is interesting, and it relates to the move toward a more ecumenical theology that I, I mentioned earlier. Niebuhr is kind of, if you will, on the trailing edge of a of a polemical Protestantism, hmm. where the polemic against natural law is, uh, you know, a, a powerful part of. Of what uh, of the way you interpret Aquinas and you think about the Catholic tradition, while at the same time, it seems that any of us who've been educated in all of this more ecumenically and more recently, that uh, that that Niebuhr's ideas 
are, are shot through with natural law uh, notions. I think the what will bear up under textual examination here is that Niebuhr's critique of natural law is largely the, the, the view of natural law that gets incorporated into the Catholic teaching in the Second Vatican Council. Hmm. So it, it, it's, it's really quite accurate to say that he's critical of Catholic natural law as he understands it. Uh, and, and as it was generally understood in his own time. But th this is where my interest in John Courtney Murray uh, yeah. figures in, is at the same time that Niebuhr was, was right, and you, you, you can find this in the Niebuhr archives in the Library of Congress, as a matter of fact, wow. where, where, where he'll go off on, on some rants that perhaps <laughs> were wisely never published. But, but, you know, all of the things that Niebuhr is saying is wrong are, are, are wrong with, with the Catholic idea of natural law were ideas that Murray and the uh, it, new uh, thinkers who were, who were rebuilding Catholic theology at the Second Vatican Council agreed with, even though they could also be equally polemical about, about Niebuhr. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. Well, could, could, could I have one just here, you know, just, I know you just asked a bunch and shot here, but th there's a little bit of a debate, you know, uh, I'm, it's not a conspiracy, but I have a question about in terms of influences. Do you think there's a certain part of the Bible that influenced Niebuhr more than others? Mm. Um, do you think that, that he drew upon a certain section? So far, nobody's had a, a, an answer to this. Um, yeah. And so we were just, I, I was just really curious as we were going through yeah. this. Uh, I mean, my, my initial temptation is, is to answer it again in terms of the historical development of, of scholarship. You know, he, he is the recipient, of course, of, for one thing, of the wealth of German biblical scholarship that wasn't widely known mm -hmm. uh, to uh, American thinkers uh, at, at that time. And, and that op was opening up, I think, especially the, the, the role of apocalyptic thought, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which, which, I mean, Niebuhr is not an apocalyptic thinker, but he understands that you can't, Un deal with and understand what the New Testament is about without including that apocalyptic element. Uh, so, so I, yeah, I, rather rather than trying, it, obviously the prophetic tradition is terribly important to him, and and uh, uh, you know, and his friendship with uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Yeah. Uh, so, so not just not just the prophets generally, but Heschel's specific understanding of, uh, of the Hebrew prophets, which, of course, Niebuhr read in German before it was translated into English and generally available to us. So, so yeah, they, I, it, it, I guess what I'm saying is it's less a question of particular books or biblical authors than it is a, a heritage of biblical scholarship that 
he's yeah. in a position to get a hold of sooner than many of his contemporaries. That's cool. Okay, yeah. Um, I my mind went to obviously creation in the fall, the cross, and in part two, I I think the what you were just talking about, Robin, a uh, part two of uh, uh, with apocalypticism. I think uh, part two of nature and destiny. Yeah. There's one place where he says, and this always stuck with me, he says, like Moses, all men must die outside the prom- the promised land. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what what a uh, what a stark visual that is. Yeah. And so yeah. he's always processing and synthesizing scripture, yeah. I think. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I would say apocalyptic. The cross is a very important uh, way that he um, understands ethics um, and uh, and the fall. So that yeah. and you said you gave an argument, Zach, for uh, prov- well, proverbs. No, I just the wisdom literature. I really wondered. I did a series on the wisdom literature this last this summer, and we're just mostly on Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And I just the uneasy conscience, man. It, it really yeah. popped out to me. I was like, mm-hmm. I wonder where he's drawing this from. Yeah. Um, ah, yeah. Yeah. No, no one could confirm my theory though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, my, my first thought would be to, in, in fact, look for it in his reading of contemporary philosophical and psychological literature rather, rather than in a, in a biblical source. I, I, I was struck your comment about everybody everybody dies outside the the promised land you know and, and this opens up a whole different uh line of, of discussion but remember that Dietrich Bonhoeffer also wrote a very powerful poem about uh Moses walking over the promised land and and dying and I, you know, I guess we need to try to grasp what it must have been like to be looking at the world situation in the middle of the Second World War, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and 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 mm. you know, Niebuhr writes Nature and Destiny at the very beginning of that time, yeah. uh, but it, it, clearly the 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 realist vision comes together and comes to maturity in the context of that tragic global conflict mm. which i hesitate to say it but let's let, let's not neglect uh the the possibility that we may be on the edge of, yeah. of something uh uh well this is this is when I hope Marx is right that the first time is tragedy and the second time is farce, farce yeah. <laughs> because yeah, because I would hate to see the tragedy repeated. Yeah, okay. Well, I have I have uh, one more serious question, and Zach has one more. Yeah, and then I have a spooky one to end on. Okay, because it's because it's the season. Uh, so in Nature and Destiny, Niebuhr goes to great lengths, and I, I asked a similar question earlier, but um, Niebuhr goes to great lengths to effectively save the Christian language of sin. 
mm-hmm. from how others kind of co-opted it within, you know, pietistic or evangelical traditions. Is is that battle worthwhile today? Is is the Christian view of sin still worth defending, or is it just too far gone? And mm. we have to find another way of explaining human nature. Because I, I know from my experience, when I bring up sin to non-Christians and Christians alike, they, you know, immediately lose interest and, you know, mm-hmm. want to change the subject. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, of course, one way of explaining that is that it's a, it, it is a very challenging and even threatening idea. I, in that sense, I don't think we can ever do without it. Uh, the question of how large a role it can play in in the apologetic side of of what we do is, I suppose, a question that has to be answered. But the thing there is, I think the challenge is to get people to acknowledge the role that sin, as Niebuhr understands it, plays in their own self-understanding. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, so get away from what they think they've heard from Christians, mm. and especially from the list of... One of the things I say about our current world is that there are a whole lot of people who have very clear ideas about what God doesn't want other people to do. Yeah. Uh, and and many people, when they think of sin, think precisely of people who told them that whatever it is they're doing hmm. is what God yeah. wants them to do. So, so in a lot of ways, for the very reason so many people recoil when they hear, you know, sin is the very reason they need to hear it. Then, yes, yes, ex- ex- exactly. Uh, and and and, but at the same time, they don't need to recoil because. They think that God agrees with whoever it is over here who right. told them they shouldn't be doing what it what it is they're doing. Yeah. True, true. Yeah. yeah, my my final question. It's kind of a two part question. Where is Niebuhr studies to go from here? Where does it go from here? And maybe who are some people, maybe fifty and under, who you think uh-huh. are leading the the charge with Niebuhr studies that you're looking forward to hearing more from? Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I think in part because of where we find ourselves historically now, a lot of good work in theology can be done about the recovery of that mid-century Christianity, uh, Second World War era, and then right afterwards, which is why irony of American history is is so important. I think uh, it, it, you, you've mentioned a couple of people, uh, Jeremy Sabella yeah. certainly has a wonderful comprehensive understanding of, of Niebuhr and I look forward to hearing more uh, as, as he develops his own constructive view in relation to this. Uh, Joshua Malden, who was my co-editor on the uh, Niebuhr Handbook, has <clears throat> written a book on Bart and Bonhoeffer that, that again, I think explicates that mid-century theology and locates it in the broader tradition of German thought that, that preceded it, uh, and, and that that's... That, 
there's a there's a bit of historical work that needs to be done like that in order uh, to see the relevance of Christian realism. We have to step back from what did Reinhold Niebuhr and other people say about their times to an understanding of the of the background of thought yeah. that uh, really made their thinking possible. Like what I was saying a minute ago about. Uh, the use of biblical studies in, in Niebuhr, for example. Excellent. Um, since it's spooky season, I have a spooky question for both of you. All right, well, I'm going to paint you a picture here, hypothetical. It's the middle of the night. Reinhold and, Ur Reinhold and Ursula are fast asleep, snug in their beds. There's a terrible storm, lightning crashing outside. The house is rumbling. Electricity goes out all across New York, and suddenly Reinhold and Ursula are startled awake by a knock at the door. It's Dr. Frankenstein, <laughs> a modern doc Dr. Frankenstein who created a monster out of AI and nanotech, and the monster is wreaking havoc on the Upper West Side. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein's hand, and in his hand, he has an iPad, and he says, quick, Reiny, I forgot to put a self-destruct button on my monster's software, and all I can do is reprogram it from this iPad before it tears Manhattan apart. Reinhold says, okay, what do you need? Dr. Frankenstein says, I can upload two books, one fiction, <laughs> one nonfiction, into the monster's mainframe to turn him into a real human with a conscience. What should I upload? I have a I have a Kindle subscription. Yes. What what two books? And this is for both of you guys. What two books would Niebuhr choose? Or if you were Niebuhr in this situation, what would you choose? Well, I think Niebuhr would clearly choose Augustine's Confessions. Interesting. In uh, if, if, you know, and and and. Likewise, I would certainly want this rampaging monster <laughs> to uh, to to have to think about Augustine's uh, autobiographical reflection. So, so that that's good would would be it. Uh, and, and then uh, the second one's fiction. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, let's see then. Fiction uh, that. Uh, and I'm trying to be Niborian about this, but he 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 doesn't talk much about fiction. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess uh, what would you pick then? Uh, there's, there's, yeah. It, hmm? Well, as you say, there's got to be an obvious. It's Don Quixote. Ah. <laughs> oh, that's an actually that is that and and what the reason why I like that and probably it would have picked it if I thought about it for a while is is. There, with Augustine and Don Quixote, you you have the contrast between tragedy and irony. Oh wow! Yeah, mm. uh, and uh, and uh, you know, I think I think what Niebuhr would understand, if you will, is that the monster would not really want to consign himself to a tragic role in history but he but he might be willing to accept an ironic role in, in uh you know in 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 which he could do 
I don't know, stand-up comedy for the rest of his career. <laughs> Perfect. Oh yeah. gosh. Uh, I I would have. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That was the perfect answer. So we're <laughs> we're concluding with that. Uh, Don Quixote and, and uh, Confessions. There it is. Dr. Robin Levin, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed this very much. Good. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, uh, Dr. Robin Levin, for joining. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. If you're just joining us, make sure you click subscribe, write us a good review if you're enjoying it, and follow us on Twitter, slash X, whatever it's called now, at LoveThyNeighbor for news and updates, and leave us a tip while you're there, if you can. Take care, everybody, and, and stay safe out there.